We've seen used car prices start to normalize. They've come down over the last 12 months, but they're still not at pre-pandemic levels. Interest rates have skyrocketed. So I think consumers are trying to hold on. They know it's hard to get a car. Financing is gonna be more costly. So they're sitting in this perpetual delinquency, but not letting the car uh, roll, roll to loss. What's up, everyone? This is Car Dealership Guy. You're listening to the Car Dealership Guy podcast, which is my effort to give you access to the most unbiased and transparent insights into the car market. Let's get into today's episode. Betty Jotanovic is the president of Chrysler Capital and Auto Relationships at Santander. In this conversation, we discussed how Santander predicts auto loan defaults, the rise of 96-month loans, the challenging vehicle affordability landscape for consumers, solving for EV and auto loan fraud risks, rising defaults, repos, and much more. But before we get into the show, this episode is brought to you by AutoFi. Most digital retail platforms are limited in their capabilities and fall short on empowering dealers to convert shoppers into buyers while protecting profitability. AutoFi delivers done deals by empowering your dealership with the technology to land customers on the right vehicle and deal. From payment configuration, F&I product selection, credit, and real-time lender offers plus the backend selling tools to help close the deal. This accelerates the deal no matter where the customer is, on the dealer's website, over the phone, or in the showroom, and translates to a faster sale with better customer experience and higher profits. In fact, the most engaged dealers on Autofy see $411 more backend PVR versus non-Autofy deals. Go to autofy.com slash CDG to learn more or click the link in the show notes below. That's autofy.com slash CDG and start working with done deals today. This episode is also brought to you by Podium, the lead conversion platform for car dealerships. Podium helps you get found at the top of Google search and convert new leads faster with industry-leading communication tools and AI. With Podium, you can finally take the guesswork out of lead management, bring every lead into one unified inbox, respond automatically in two minutes or less, and even book appointments using AI. Get Podium and get ready to convert leads faster than ever and see why over 100,000 businesses like yours have given themselves an instant advantage with Podium. Get started today with 10% off your plan by texting Car Dealership Guy to 833 833- 441-1166. That's 833-441-1166. Text that number and mention this podcast to get 10% off your plan or visit the link in the show notes below. All right. So tons of demand requests, uh, desire from the audience to get a you know an insider's perspective into what is happening with lending, the economy, auto finance. You saw I made a post yesterday about what is going on? Like, you know, all these buzzwords, right? People talk about it all the time. It's in the media, it's on social, but what's really happening? So I think it's great to have you on so we can dive into that. Before we get started and we get into the, into the nitty gritty, can you give us your background and, you know, tell us how you got to Santander? Or did I say that right? Is it, you know, in the, in the car business, there's three ways to say it. Santander, Sandtander, <laughs> and Santander. So that's the, that's the classic saying in the car business. Yeah, you said it the right way, but I found that whenever I, and I do say it the right way, Santander, sometimes I have to say it three times. And when I finally say Santander, everyone's like, oh, Santander. Okay. But yes, you said it right. So I have been in the auto business since 1994. Love the auto business, born and raised in Detroit. I started actually um, on the assembly line at Chrysler Motors. I was going to law school at night. And I worked the midnight shift, putting nameplates on Jeep Grand Cherokees at the Jefferson North Assembly Plant. So in my career, I have worked from the beginning to the end of a life cycle of a car, from when it's built to 
when it's charged off and, and then packaged and sold in a debt sale. I started my white collar professional career at Chrysler Financial. So from the assembly line, did that for a little less than a year. And then I got a job at Chrysler Financial working in treasury, worked the cash desk. And then um, after I graduated law school, I worked in the tax department, did that for a bit. That's kind of where a lot of lawyers in the company landed. But then, I, you know, I really enjoyed the business side, um, the less stuffy not that tax is stuffy, but it really wasn't my personality. So I ended up doing a rotational um, program where I did a project for our, um, at the time, head of sales and credit. So I was essentially like his chief of staff. After I completed that program, he hired me to be his chief of staff, worked in sales and credit. And then as everyone's familiar with the Chrysler bankruptcy and the split from Daimler, they reassigned leaders. He worked on the collection side. So that's how I got my experience on the back end. You know, moving over with the executive that I worked for and then spent the better part of a decade working in collections. I went to Bank of America where I ended up running the collections, customer service, remarketing and recovery, and then ended up also at Bank of America on the front end doing the credit funding dealer management. And then that role is really what brought me to Santander. You know, they were really looking for someone to come in on the front end of the business. And as the company grew from a startup and matured into a large regulated financial institution, believe it or not, it wasn't my Chrysler financial experience that, that brought me over to uh, Santander. It was the fact that I worked for a big bank. I had a background in legal and, you know, really just to help put, put the governance and controls in the business, which was a, a big focus the first couple of years I was here. And then last year, when Bruce Jackson, who previously held this role, was promoted to CEO of the auto business, um, I took an expanded role where I took on the sales team and the commercial team, in addition to my credit and funding and dealer management responsibilities. So, All right. So for anyone listening and doesn't quite understand, you're the president of, of Chrysler Capital, but also the head of auto relationships at Santander. How does that work? Explain this to the audience. So my role is essentially the front-end dealer-facing business. So Chrysler Capital is a distinct business that we have, and we go to market as Chrysler Capital. But we also have auto relationships with other brands. We have a network of about 14,000 dealers across all OEMs. So the auto relationships piece is all everything but Chrysler Financial or Chrysler Capital. And so Chrysler Capital is its own separate white-label channel. Got it. So, and and why why do they need you, right? Like, if I'm Chrysler or if I'm whoever, some car manufacturer, why do I come to you and say, "Hey, let's set up, you know, a lending arm together"? Like, what value are you bringing? What do they bring to the table? How does that work? So, you know, from my perspective, it's 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 a couple of things. It's one, you know, having a partner that has expertise in lending, manufacturing it, it is very different from lending. It allows you to focus on that business. But I would say, you know, the, the other piece is being able to not have to deal with the, the regulatory side of it. I, I did spend about four and a half years at GE Capital. Uh, you know, I stepped away from the auto business. And one thing I learned when I was there, you know, it was a um, GE is a manufacturing company. And back in 2015, 16, they decided to start divesting a lot of their capital business. And the rationale was it was so highly regulated that it took a lot of focus away from the manufacturing side. So, you know, I think when you think of auto financing, it's very highly regulated, very consumer focused. 
And so, you know, you do have some OEMs that want to have a wholly owned captive, but they've built that expertise within their company. But where you don't want to deal with that noise and you want to focus on the manufacturing, you have a captive, they have the expertise, they can help build programs, drive financing, help you sell your product. It's a, it's a complimentary service, but also, you know, not have to deal in the weeds with some of these complex issues that, that may not affect manufacturing as much. Yeah. Look, it makes sense, right? It's not their core competency. So in concept, it makes sense to me. I'm not being not from this world at all. It's just interesting why, like why they would seek you out and what value you bring to the table. And then other than Chrysler Capital, like, do you, are you a a captive for anyone else or any other car manufacturer out there? We are. Yes. We just had our one year anniversary with Mitsubishi in May. So we we do that business. And then we just recently announced um, partnership with Lotus and with Ineos. So if I go right now to buy, I actually tweeted about Mitsubishi's the other day. I was, I was tweeting about the, the, the seven passenger Outlanders. I don't know if you, you know how familiar you are with those, but they're pretty hot. They're pretty hot sellers for their price point. Anyway, so if I go buy one right now from a Mitsubishi dealer and I finance it through, you know, Mitsubishi Financial. So that's you actually on the back end. Yes. And so for Mitsubishi, we do it through the Santander brand. So there's not a separate branding there, but we are the preferred lender. And so any subvention would come through us. Got it. Transitioning to dealers for a second, right? You have a massive, massive portfolio of just dealer business. What, what's the number you mentioned? Like 14,000. 14,000. Got it. So is most of your business today, is it actually being originated from independent dealers or is it, you know, through these captive arms at franchise dealers? Like, how does that work? What's the distribution there or whatever you can share? You know, it's primarily franchise dealers. So obviously, you know, Chrysler and then our other OEM partners, Mitsubishi, Lotus, and Ineos, but along with all of our other um, dealers, any OEM. So we will have Ford and GM and Kia and Toyota, you name it. We do all the OEMs. We have a very small portfolio of franchise dealers. We have stringent requirements just because of the risk associated with that. But we do have a pathway for franchise affiliates. So if you're affiliated with an um, with a franchise dealer that we do business with, there is a path to do business with us. But the requirements are just a lot more stringent. Being from the independent side, Santander is like a tough lender to sign up with as a dealer. Like I can tell you, like I've been there, <laughs> and that's the reputation on the street. It's just, it's tough to get. Why is that? Would you say like, why, why do you, do you have a tougher reputation to sign up with new dealers in the market? Yeah. And, and I think that's changed, you know, the last several years, you know, with our evolution, as I mentioned, this it was a very entrepreneurial startup type of company. And then when Banco Santander purchased it, it obviously we had to be held to a much higher standard of operating, a lot more regulatory scrutiny. You know, we deal with all the regulators from the Fed to the CFPB to the OCC, as well as we're subject to regulation by the 50 states. So there's someone always looking over our shoulder. Aside from that, it is the right thing to do. We want to make sure that we manage the risk in our business. We want to make sure that we're doing the right things for our customers. And so we do have a very stringent vetting process to make sure that the dealers that we do business with are reputable. And that just makes our job a lot easier because we're very focused on 
doing the right thing for the consumer, ensuring no customer harm. And it just makes our job a lot easier if you're dealing with reputable dealers. And there are a lot of them out there. I'll, I'll give you kudos. We went through the sign-up process, I mean, not too long ago. And it was like, it was intense in a good way. I mean, you know, things went well, but you could tell that your team definitely does their diligence. So kudos to you on that, because I, I don't think every lender can attest to that. <laughs> so I guess on the topic of dealers, while we're at it, from your perspective, like what do you actually seek in a dealer or like what makes an excellent dealership for you to work with? You know, for, for us, we're looking for a partner. We're looking for, you know, a dealer that wants to have a mutually beneficial relationship. We want to see quality and volume. You know, we're traditionally known as a subprime lender. That's where we got our start. But with the Chrysler Capital relationship, you know, we obviously are a full spectrum lender. We do lease, we do retail, we do small business commercial, floor plan. So we want a dealer that is going to leverage all of our capabilities, send us a wide spectrum of volume and quality of volume. So if I'm understanding this correctly, are you are you starting to expand away from subprime? Not saying that you're not doing subprime anymore, but are you looking to like move upstream and additionally or like what's your thought there? Absolutely. We're a full spectrum lender and we have been doing prime has been historically under the Chrysler Capital brand is what the market has seen, but we are and have launched it under the Santander brand. So, you know, we have that capability to do prime as well as subprime and, and, you know, and all the other products, lease and commercial as well. So, you know, it, it like hypothetically speaking, if I was in that boardroom where you're, you know, talking about kind of moving upstream, how are you taught? Like, what's your strategy to compete, right? Because the, the marketplace is efficient. There's plenty of lenders that are operating in the prime segment. How are you going to compete in that segment? Like, how do you think you can actually gain market share there? Whatever you can share on that. So, so I think that the top prime segment is always going to be very competitive. You've got your big banks out there. You know, I spent several years at Bank of America. They're a top prime lender and that's where they play. So, and the margins are very thin. So it may not be worth it for us to get super aggressive and fight for that top prime business, but we think there's a place for us, you know, right behind that top prime. Maybe we're not, you know, the the best price there, but when you start getting a little bit lower in the food chain in that prime behind the top prime, as well as in the near prime segment, that's where, that's where we excel. And that's where I see we have a place. And then I think where we really fit is, you know, if we're in that, in that room, with the, the the dealer and the customer, and maybe you know Bank of America, Chase, Wells, you name your your bank lender. Maybe they don't approve it, but but we do as a tier three, and we come right behind them. I think that that's our advantage. Where if a prime lender won't buy it, or maybe they're not as competitive, we're willing to you know to go a little deeper, and we know how to how to price in that near prime space. Yeah. So my super simplistic brain thinks that. In order to be the most competitive in your in your field, you have to be the best at predicting risk. Because the better you can predict risk, the better you can price the collateral or the loans. So, what is? I, I, and look, I get these things are complicated algorithms and whatnot. But like, how are you quantifying risk? Obviously, not other than credit score. Like, what is there like anything specific that you look for that's different in other lenders? Like, how are you how are you going about that? Yeah, we have a proprietary model that we've built. It'll look at historical performance with us, on us, off us. 
you know, we obviously use the standard tools in the market to identify fraud, but we have a heavy reliance on our, a lot of elements I can't share that are proprietary, but I think that's kind of our secret sauce that we have experience in segments that other lenders may not. And so that that's our competitive advantage. So I want to zoom out for a second. Like you've, you've seen a lot. I love that you worked from like, you know, the manufacturing, you know, on, on the floor all the way through the, the supply chain to the top. It's really, really admirable. Tell me a little bit about like the current just state of the union right now with respect to the economy. Like we'll get into more, you know, specifics, but I'm just curious, like what's going through your head nowadays, you know, like what's keeping you up at night with respect to like auto loan performance, the broader economy and, and everything to do with that? Yeah, I, I think, you know, when you look at performance, we all enjoyed the best of times during the pandemic where we had, you know, 0% financing. Um, there were cars available. Consumers were flushed with cash between stimulus and then, you know, not spending money on gas to go to work and, and not going out to eat or going on vacation. So we enjoyed a lot of good times in terms of originations as well as, um, you know, the performance of, of the back book. You know, what we're seeing now is kind of a, a return to normal. From a delinquency perspective, we're seeing a return to almost pre-pandemic levels. But when you look at the actual losses and, and charge-offs and repos, those aren't quite there. So that kind of tells... How, how do you reconcile that? Yeah, how do you reconcile that? Th that tells me that the consumer is strained. We've seen used car prices start to normalize. They've come down over the last 12 months, but they're still not at pre-pandemic levels. Interest rates have skyrocketed. So I think consumers are trying to hold on. They know it's hard to get a car. Financing is going to be more costly. So they're sitting in this perpetual delinquency, but not letting the car uh, roll, roll to loss. So th that concerns me when we talk about the back book. When we look at originations, you've got the same dynamic of affordability. Car prices have skyrocketed. Interest rates are up. General inflation is just putting a you know huge pressure on the consumer's wallet, and so it's making harder it harder for the average consumer to to buy even a used car, let alone a new car, which has almost become out of reach for you know the, the average American. Yeah, what do you think the end game is here? I mean, do you think just like you know financial products have to evolve to meet the modern day consumer and car prices or do we see like deflation on car prices like what do you actually think happens here yeah that's that's tough i, I think we're going to have to see some some lower cost options in the market you know we've seen new car prices skyrocket because of the options and especially now with the shift to evs there's a lot of r&d costs that has to be moved on you know priced into the cost of the car, I think we're going to have to see some lower cost options for consumers. And I, and I know a lot of OEMs are looking into that and, and creating the right product that the consumers can afford. And, and that's on the new car side. When we think about the used car side, we're still, I think we're still grappling with a bit of a supply challenge. And so once we start to see that supply normalize, you know, only then can we see some relief. And then, you know, in terms of the interest rate environment, that, that just makes it even more challenging. So we're going to have to see some changes there. You know, you mentioned financing options. I don't know that extended terms are the answer. You know, I think it's a short-term solution where you, know, you can bring a payment down, but longer term, 
it's going to create challenges for the consumer. If they can't otherwise afford the car, extending that term to me is just kind of prolonging the inevitable, you know, potentially putting them into a negative equity position down the road. So, so that, you know, that may not be the solution. Yeah. Do you see on the topic of extended term, do you see a future where uh, like 96 month used car loans are just like a common everyday reality? Do you think that's, that's viable and and likely to happen? Yeah, that's tough. And we're, you know, we're very rigid with our extended terms. You know, only 12% of our portfolio is 73 to 75 month. Only 2% is over 84. And where we do offer the extended terms, it's typically going to be a prime customer. We want to make sure that the customer can afford the car. And, and, you know, contrary to popular belief, we, we, we don't want a customer to default. We don't make money when a, when a customer you know, charges off or is repoed. So it's very important for us and the customer to assess the affordability up front. So when we do offer an extended term, we're going to make sure that there isn't layered risks such as high LTV, you know, high mileage on a car, really a, a unit that a unit or a borrower that really shouldn't qualify for an extended term. So I think 96 month terms may be a solution for a customer that can otherwise afford the car and by choice wants to, you know, maybe reduce the the cash flow impact, but I don't think it's a solution where we're going to put customers into cars they can't afford and just spread it over a longer term. I don't think it's good for us or the customer. You mentioned something that like, is that really a misconception that you benefit when someone repos gets repoed? Is that like a misconception out there? It absolutely is. Our goal is to work with the customer, keep them in the car. We've got stringent requirements up front in terms of uh, assessing capacity to repay. We want to make sure the customer can afford the car. And then from a servicing perspective, we want to do all that we can to work with the customer and, and, and help them uh, to stay in that car. That's why you know we, we do have an active outreach program and, and we encourage our customers to work with us when they are coming across challenging times. You know, one thing that I've learned in this business is that one of the best ways to mitigate uh, repos and you know also help you as a dealer with your portfolio in the long term is simply... I mean, simply, it's, you know, easier said than done, but properly reconditioning the vehicle. I, I think there, the stats are like, you know, 50% of repos or something like that are from customers where the vehicle, subprime customers where the vehicle like broke down or they can't afford repairs. I think, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong on that. But what we saw is that, you know, just properly reconditioning it, then of course, you know, being reinsured as a, as a dealer, you know, meaning you're providing your own captive, uh, you know, vehicle service contracts to your consumers, right, where you're actually profiting from the underwriting profit or loss. Anyways, very wordy, but the long story short being that it was tremendously uh, helpful in reducing just loss ratios throughout the portfolio because, you know, you invest a little bit more in that car, make sure that the consumer is not, it's, as, as much as you can, it's a machine, but as much as you can, that it's going to last them a while, maybe even give them a little, you know, coaching again, as much as you can on maintenance it's not always perfect. It's far from it. Lots of people don't listen. Lots of people don't care. Lots of people don't have the money, but it definitely helps you. And at the end of the day, if you take these couple steps proactively, just build into your process, you know, we found that it just really does help with long-term performance of your portfolio. Absolutely. And, and, and I would even say making sure that upfront you've got policy restrictions on, on collateral. 
and the type of collateral that that you underwrite. So I think that that's a big factor as well. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I do feel like most of the dealers that I speak with are generally long-term thinkers. And that's why they they consume this type of content and because they actually care. You know, there's always bad apples in every bunch. But I think those dealers do think about like, hey, how can I make sure that my portfolio with, you know, X lender is great for many years to come. And so my business thrives because at the end of the day, as as, as a dealer, if you can't lend, if you don't have the right lending partners and lending relationships, you're not putting any car on that road. That's right. Or very few. That's right. Yeah. So... So transitioning, you mentioned EVs. When it comes to quantifying the risk on EVs versus you know internal combustion, like how are you doing that right now? So we're still early in the game. So I think like everyone else, we're you know we're working through the risks. You know, clearly battery life is 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 a concern. The cost to repair that vehicle once the battery goes may or may not be worth keeping the vehicle. To the extent we lease CVs, there's there's obviously um, a potential impact on residual values. So what we're seeing, you know, currently is most of our EV volume is with prime customers. You know, the typical auto loan will cycle off in about two and a half years. Um, and EVs are still relatively new to the market. So I don't think we're at that point in the, the life cycle of EVs that it's it's an imminent concern. But it's definitely something that we continue to monitor. We currently don't have any specific policies or restrictions related to EVs. But again, it's something we monitor as we start to see the EV units in the market um, start to age. I think that's something that you know we're well aware is going to bring its own risk, and we'll continue to assess and, and adapt. Yeah, I mean, to me, you know, assuming there's some greater level of dispersion and value of, you know, a 10-year-old EV versus a 10-year-old internal combustion vehicle versus what we know today, it feels like there's an opportunity there as well, right? Whoever can properly assess the the risk on that collateral and that loan feels like nowadays it could just be a really big competitive advantage when everyone is, you know, it feels like scrambling in a way or not exactly knowing how aggressive to be when putting out a loan for an EV. So that's awesome. Going on the lines of, you mentioned earlier, collections and repos. So back on that line for a second, right? Tell us a little bit about just like the nitty gritty of that side of the world. Like, what does your recovery network look like? How do you locate a vehicle? Like, how, how does all this actually work behind the scenes? Yeah, so we have a, a network of forwarders that we use. And just thinking back to my Chrysler financial days, I think Back in probably 2008, 2009 is when a lot of lenders started to move into that. And part of it was just the complexity of managing uh, a gigantic vendor network across all states. So, you know, we do have a network that we use. As I mentioned, we typically like to work with the customer. We, we don't want to repo a car. So we will, you know, we have active outreach programs, whether it's calls, texts, making sure that, that we've given the customer ample opportunity to ask for help and really work with us. But then unfortunately, we know that sometimes repo is the only option. So, you know, in that case, we do try to, as you mentioned, recondition the car, make sure we're maximizing the value. And then working with our forwarders, providing whatever information we have in terms of last known address, you know, other tools that we use to try to locate the customer. And then, you know, it's the typical industry tools that the repo agents will use, like the license plate recognition, 
And they typically, you know, once we assign a car out for repo, our average time to recovery is about about 10 days. Oh, I mean, sounds quick to me. So you mentioned like resources working with the customer. I think that's a really important point to hammer because, you know, I think some people out there think that customer may kind of fall into some financial issues, some time passes, car disappears. But what you're stating is is really important that, you know, you like you mentioned, you have outreach programs, you work with customers, there's resources, right? You're really trying to mitigate this. That's helpful. So when it comes to like trends that you're noticing with fraud or is there anything it was specifically with respect to repossessions are you noticing an uptick in any forms of fraud leading to repossessions or is there something that's happening right now that you're noticing in the economy one more thing I'll to, to note there before you for your respond i recently had a guy named frank mckenna on the podcast from point predictive which is like a fraud analytics or you know they do a lot of different analytics and technology for the industry he was just talking to us about all the new types of fraud that are arising because of just the situation you know the kind of the macro situation that led us to this point in the economic cycle. So I'm curious, you know, from your perspective, I see you nodding. What are you seeing when it comes with respect to fraud and, you know, repossessions? Yeah, I think, you know, when we think of fraud or at least, you know, traditionally as kind of bad guys trying to, you know, get cars. But, you know, what we're seeing now, I think it is is, is very different. It's, It's a product of the macro environment where, you know, you've got customers that are just stuck. And, and, you know, we're, we're seeing bad payments to avoid repossession, quick paydowns with an attempt to trade the car. So I think it's, you know, we're seeing a lot more impacts to the economy and just desperation versus, you know, like we've all been familiar with fraud rings in the past where it's a little more organized. I think now it's just a sign of the times and the challenges that we're seeing in the economy. And then the other trend I would say is, you know, as you move to digital and online, you start to see more synthetic IDs. You know, I think that's one thing that I love about the dealer model is the customer goes to the dealer, there's an actual human being there and, you know, they can verify their identity and and look at their driver's license and make sure they're, in fact, a real person. So I think, you know, as we start to move more to digital, that's something that we're going to have to be proactive and, and, and be able to solve for you know, right now, even even in the digital channels that we participate in, it's still typically a dealer delivery. But I, I think in the future, we're going to see potentially some contactless delivery. And that's where I think there's a, a big propensity for fraud. You have a partnership with Autofy, I believe, right? We do. Yeah. So Autofy is actually a partner of the podcast. So shout out Autofy. But tell me, how do you balance that, right? What you just mentioned, like, how do you balance going digital, right? And working with, you know, great companies that are in the digital lending space or, you know, helping get a more online sale and and lending facilitated for customers versus what you just mentioned, right? Being physically at a dealership, having a human, you know, confirm the identity of someone. How do you balance those two things? So I think our approach, at least in the short to medium term, is to continue to leverage the dealer network. We are an indirect auto business. We rely on our dealers heavily. We view our dealers as our customer and we see them as integral to the car buying process. I I know other lenders have tried to do direct to consumer. I worked for one. It was very challenged in that, you know, you're spending this money up front to market to the consumer and have your own sales team talking to the consumer, pull a bureau, do a decision, structure that deal only for the customer to go to the dealer. And then you see that same loan come through and fulfill on your indirect channel. 
you know, in, in that scenario, there there was a, a, a dealer compensation component, but but still it ended up flipping to the indirect channel. So the approach we're taking is to partner with our dealers, but to give the customer the opportunity to be in the driver's seat, no pun intended. You know, to me, those two, three years during COVID, I saw a lot more movement to digital than I did in my entire career. So I think we need to piggyback off of that. I think the consumer wants to be educated. They want to be able to shop for the car. They want to be able to understand what they qualify for, what their payment's going to be, and feel like they're, you know, they're in control of, of choosing their financing. So what, what we've built with AutoFi is our Drive US platform, you know, that we're currently piloting in Arizona and in Texas. And it lets the customer do just that. But we've also piped in to our dealer network and dealer inventory. So essentially here, we're working with our customers and letting them shop for their car, understand what payments they can afford. They can shop by payment. They could shop by unit. But then also this helps our dealers because we're helping generate leads on that side as well. So, you know, maybe down the road, there, there is a model where the, the dealer's not involved. I, I don't see it in the near term. So we're continuing just to leverage our dealer network, but then also give the customer some options. But do you think there's any embedded just advantages when you're like a vertically integrated player, like let's say Carvana, right? They have their own lending arm and whatnot. So do you think there's, is, does that just offer like an embedded advantage where you maybe have some more like fraud mitigation and it's easier to do the online transaction? Or do you think that that ultimately gets commoditized across the industry and every dealer can, you know, sort of operate to those standards, you know, in an online, in an online way. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think it's the latter. I think where, you know, the auto industry, once somebody figures it out, others quickly follow. So I think, you know, to the extent that they can, you know, find the secret sauce to fully preventing fraud, I think, you know, I, I think you're going to see other lenders or other OEMs, dealers, lenders quickly piggyback on that. But I think that the challenge when you're operating vertically is you still have to have lender partners. You're still going to need access to capital. It's cyclical. Maybe you excel in a certain area of lending, but I think you still need a partner to that's complementary. So even where you see some of our other partners, whether it's national accounts or, you know, other Auto, you know, like, like CarMax is a great example. They have their own captive, but they also have lender partners. So it's just a matter of having options and having partners that are complementary where they may excel in an area where you don't and, and vice versa. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think no one balance sheet wants all of the loans and all of that risk. You know, everyone has different preferences. So that makes total sense. You know, you mentioned being able to deal with all types of loans. So I thought there I had is, what do you do with all the loans, right? Like you underwrite, you then create all these loans. What do you actually do with them? So the loans sit on our balance sheet and and, and we service them. But um, we are also the second largest issuer in the auto ABS market. So you know, I did not know we, that. Yep. We are the second largest <laughs> issuer. Yeah. So check us out. So that gives us an, an option. We have a ton of investors and like hedge funds that listen to this. So that's actually a good plug. <laughs> And, and I would I would hope they're they're already familiar with us, but if not, let me know. And yeah, we can, I'm sure they are. In touch with the right people here, but yeah, so we we will sometimes securitize the loans to raise capital. It's just an efficient way of funding for us. So we pledge the loans, but they still sit on our balance sheet, and we still service them. 
Mm-hmm. And but do you keep do you keep some? Do you like sell like how do you decide uh what to keep versus what to sell and, and all that? It it just depends on the time and the market and the pricing. We've got um, alternate sources of funding. So it's just a matter of of balancing. So, you know, if we want to go to the capital markets, but maybe the pricing isn't right for the time, you know, we can not wait and and sell it another time or seek alternate funding. Yeah. So this question is not exclusive to Santander, but just, you know, being the position you're at, right? A lot of dealers are saying, hey, you know, like the, my my bank fees or acquisition fees, right? When I'm doing a loan with a subprime customer, I have to pay an acquisition fee to the lender and that's to, you know, reduce the loan to value and, you know, reduce the risk, right? That's a very simplistic way to put it. But lots of dealers are saying, you know, hey, my acquisition fees are, are rising. LTVs are are dropping, right? I'm, I'm having trouble getting customers approved. Like what's the, you know, explain to us like a, you know, to me, like a third grader, like why is that happening? What's happening behind the scenes that's leading to that? So, you know, in terms of structure and credit, I think that just comes down to affordability. We did not get aggressive during the pandemic when times were good, and we don't want to be aggressive now either. So we want to make sure that, like we talked about earlier, that we're assessing at the individual level, not the portfolio level, that the customer can afford that loan. So I think that's the first piece. Then in terms of, of fees, you know, if you think about the subprime customer, the prime the prime customer is going to feel the increases of uh, you know the, the interest rate environment um, because they're used to two three four percent interest rates and then you see the interest rates going up. If you're a subprime customer and you're already at you know the the maximum interest rate for your state, we can't price that loan any higher. But with our cost of funds increasing, the money's got to come from somewhere. Got to come from somewhere. So our cost of funds has increased. You know, we need to price for the risk of that loan, the cost of of servicing that loan. And so to the extent that we can't make up that margin and price for the risk and price for the servicing, that's where, you know, we may introduce that as a fee or in some cases, cut back the structure to reduce the risk of the loan. And when it comes to the macro, like with interest rates being where they're at, and and spreads as well. Can you talk just a little bit about that? Like, how does that impact your ability to then sell off some loans where the market is maybe pricing these, you know, these bundles differently than they would have two years ago? Yeah, so fortunately, we've got a, a fantastic treasury and securitization team that, that handles the, the details of that. But basically, they, they go to market and price, well, they'll price a deal. And they have the they take the judgment to decide do we want to place that loan in the market or is this not the right time we seek alternate funding sources one example of a funding source we have for our prime loans we leverage our bank balance sheet so Santander Bank North America we do originate loans on their behalf so we have that as an option where we don't have to sell these loans we put it on the bank's balance sheet and this would be where where our prime portfolio sits so before we get to the macro, I want to backpedal for one second. And earlier you were talking about like the physical in-person customer being at the dealership and how you love that from a you know verification standpoint. What about internally when it comes to your, like your underwriters, right? Your actual team. How much of that is still being done by humans versus like computers, machines behind the scenes? What's the what's the difference there? So we've got a a very automated model 
you know, and, I, and I've worked in for three different auto lenders. And I would say by far, I think we have the, the best model. We have a decision engine that will run and it will assess credit. It will pull the bureaus. It will run your, know your customer, the KYC in the background. It will run OFAC and it will price the loan. This allows us to send a decision to the dealer within seconds. And so I'm sure you know it's very important that you get a decision right away. If it's too Absolutely. long, then you're not even in the room. You know, other lenders I've worked at are we're probably in the 75% automated where 25% goes to, to an underwriter, best case. So this is fantastic, but does it take away the need for underwriters? Absolutely not. We will still see about 20, 30% of our applications where an underwriter actually touches them and works with the dealer. Now, we do have a dealer portal that we use. It allows the dealer to be able to go in and make small changes to the application. They could do rehashes within policy, which is fantastic. It's great during busy times. It's great after hours, you know, weekends, although we are open. But there are just times where the dealer needs to talk to an underwriter. They may not understand our program. They may ask if we can make a, a pricing or, or policy adjustment or just have to have general questions about the loan. So I think our model is great where it leverages the best of automation, creates consistency, but also gives the dealer the option if they want to go self-serve on our portal for something simple, they can do that. But if not, we still have a team of underwriters that is here and, and ready and, and able to help them. I still think this is a highly uh, relationship business and we want to keep it that way. Are you hiring? <laughs> Some of your resume. Not, not for me, but <laughs> no, but you know what we'll do though? We will put your link in the show notes. So, you know, if you are hiring, uh, I'm sure lots of you are listening here are, like I said, are in the industry and on the lending side. So, you know, maybe we can get something lined up there as well. Transition to macro, right? Like what's your outlook here for the next couple of years? You know, are you preparing for quote unquote higher rates for longer? Or how, how are you thinking about all this? Yeah, we we are. We are preparing for higher rates for longer. We obviously very closely watch Fed movement. You know, right now it's not looking like we're going to get any relief until, you know, I don't want to misspeak, but, you know, sometime mid next year. And it's not going to be a drastic drop. So, it, you know, it's going to take time. So, you know, we consider this when we plan our, our, our volume, when we plan our profitability, we run various scenarios just to try to be ready for each scenario. What we don't want to do is something unnatural. I'm very fortunate that, that leadership here has been in the business a long time and they understand that they're cycles. So we're not going to do anything unnatural. We're not going to do anything aggressive to try to manage the cycle and force um, some profitability or some volume that's not there. We're going to stay the course and continue to do what's right for our customers and, and our dealers and, and our shareholders. Yeah, it sounds like a prudent strategy. So you're you're in survive till 25 cam. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, you just gotta you gotta make it through the bad we made it through the good times and now we gotta make it through the bad times. Like I mentioned earlier, we did not get aggressive during the good times and try to overcapitalize on that, which would then introduce risk down the road. And we're not gonna do anything aggressive in this cycle either. We just got to stay the course. So Betty, you know, we're about to wrap up, you know, 
what do you have to say like to dealers in general, like from your perspective, like what's going to be important or how, do, how are you thinking about the environment that we're entering or that we're already, you know, within and just, you know, as a dealer performing for consumers, right? Getting those loans to perform. Like, how do you think about all that? You know, like we talked about earlier, this, this is a cycle. We've all been through them. We had a great cycle and now we're, you know, we're facing some challenges. I think we need to just stay the course. And I think what's really important for us internally, as well as for the dealers we do business with, is to have a strong control environment. We find that our best dealer partners have a strong control environment. It helps prevent fraud. It helps prevent income inflation, power booking, and and consumer harm in general. And it helps our partnership. Dealers need lenders and and lenders need dealers. And I think this is something we can do to to help each other till we come out on the other side of this. Yeah, it's good advice. And I think that, you know, there isn't like one you know, one silver bullet when it comes to controls from my experience. I think it's it's a combination of a lot of different things, especially at the dealership when you have, you know, some people rotating seats, they come with different habits. So we always found, my two cents at least, it's just if you set very clear expectations up front and make it very like just abundantly clear, like these are like your standards, you don't deviate from them under any circumstance and, and you're kind of thinking long-term, most people will do the right thing and just sort of, you know, adapt to the way you operate in whatever business. Some people won't and, you know, those people don't last, but I feel like most people really do, you know, want to do the right thing when it comes from the top, you know, when it, when it doesn't come from the top, that's a bit of a different story. So yeah, in my experience, I haven't met a lot of bad dealers, but there may be bad actors within store. It happens. And so having that strong control environment to be able to detect it, prevent it, that's key. Awesome. Betty, this has been an incredible conversation. If anyone wants to learn more about you or, you know, Santander, you know, positions at Santander, working with Santander, where can they go to learn more? They can go to SantanderConsumerUSA.com. Amazing. And we'll also put the link in the show notes below with your info and the website. Betty, that's all I got for you. Okay. Awesome conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate your time. And thank you for all the dealers that do business with us. And if you don't do business with us, come check us out. All right. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Please give the podcast a rating. Consider subscribing to the show and check the show notes for links to what we talked about. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you guys next time.